Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings. This is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back uh, to another edition of the Pan-African Journal, the special worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, December 26, uh, 2021. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to yet another edition of our program. The program will feature our Pan-African Newswire report that will have dispatches on the announcement by the Ethiopian government that it has arrested suspects in a plot to destabilize the Horn of Africa state. There were more than 100 people injured during recent protests in the Republic of Sudan, which demanded an immediate transition to civilian democratic rule. Mozambique uh, civilians are requesting additional support from the Southern African Development Community in the fight to end the insurgency in Cabo Delgado. And South African Anglican Bishop Emeritus Desmond Tutu has died in the Republic of South Africa. In the second hour, we look back on two major stories of 2021, the centenary of the Tulsa massacre inside the United States, along with the attempts to destabilize the government of Ethiopia, which has been happening now for more than a year. Finally, we review some of the most pressing and burning issues taking place on the African continent. Stay tuned. Uh, this is uh, the beginning of our program. We'll take our musical interlude uh, with music from Northwest Africa among the Tuareg people. This album is entitled Tino Rewin. Let's listen in.
Thank you very much. You're welcome to the desert. 
Scenario and people in desert. <laughs> After you are the shamuki, you will be here.
Thank you. Thank you very much. Tonight, you know, it's, it's, tonight, it's, it's hot tonight. I am happy tonight. Because you will do tonight.
Welcome back, and uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide uh, radio broadcast, and uh, that was uh, music uh, from the Tuareg people of Northwest Africa uh, from an album entitled Tino Rewin. And, uh, of course, uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal. And uh, right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswise segment uh, of our program. Our lead story uh, deals uh, with the current security situation in the Horn of Africa state of Ethiopia. The Ethiopia National Intelligence and Service Security Agency uh, just this last past Tuesday disclosed that it has arrested about 164 individuals over alleged involvement in activity to support terrorist groups, uh, 5.8 kilograms of gold and hard currencies from different countries were seized. Uh, That's according to a report by the Ethiopian Broadcasting Corporation, which cited a statement sent to it uh, from the NISS. The currency and gold were meant to be used by groups that the Ethiopian parliament designated as terrorist organizations. The Tigray People's Liberation Front, the TPLF, and the military wing of the Oromo Liberation Front, uh, which the government calls as Shani. Twelve of the suspects are linked uh, to an attempt to smuggle out 5.8 kilograms of gold bars through Bole International Airport. The hard currency was wrapped uh, with minced meat to an undisclosed destination, uh, 34,100 British pounds, 27,170 euro dollars, and 6,200 Swiss francs, and 209,750 U.S. dollars. 400 Canadian dollars, 4,059, no, 4,059,378,000 Ethiopian bear, 47,370 euro, uh, 37,330 British pounds again, were seized at Bolo International Airport as reported by uh, the Ethiopian Broadcasting uh, Corporation. The National Intelligence and Security Services of Ethiopia claims the funds were meant to finance the TPLF and the OLF Shani cells abroad. The objective of some of the suspects seemed to be just meant to smuggle hard currency out of Ethiopia with the intention to harm Ethiopia's economy. And uh, in Sudan, 178 people were wounded uh, by the security forces in Khartoum yesterday as a result of the excessive use of violence to disperse the anti-coup protest. Protesters in Sudan took to the streets to reaffirm their rejection of uh, the dissolution of the transitional government by the military component just two months ago on October the 25th. In a statement released uh, late on Saturday, the Central Committee of the Sudanese Doctors said that 178 demonstrators were injured, including eight by live bullet wounds. Three of them are of a critical nature. The Sudanese government closed main streets leading to the Republican Palace in Khartoum, uh, shut down Internet services. They deployed troops on the bridges linking the three towns of the capital of Khartoum, Khartoum North, and Abdaman. Five days after the last protest on December the 19th, the demonstrators again made their target the presidential palace, which is the premises of the military-dominated Sovereign Council. In spite of the massive deployment of joint security forces, including the police, 
the army and the rapid support forces. The protesters marched towards the palace, chanting slogans to denounce the coup d'etat of General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan. People are stronger, and it is impossible to go back. Uh, they also chanted to voice their determination to continue the protest that started immediately after the first hours of the coup on October the 25th. Uh, women participated in Saturday's uh, demonstration to show they were not intimidated by the sexual violence and rape by the security forces that occurred on December the 19th. The police used live ammunition and tear gas to disperse the protests in the streets near the Republican Palace. Nonetheless, they failed to stop the demonstrations. The security authorities in Khartoum on Friday announced the closure of the bridges and streets leading to the sovereign and strategic sites. The security services will deal with chaos and abuses, said a statement issued by the Security Coordination Committee of Khartoum State. Also, it warned against attacks on sovereign sites. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. In the southern African state of Mozambique, the Southern African National Defense Forces, the South African National Defense Forces spokesperson, uh, Brigadier General Andreas Mahapa, said Mozambican locals uh, were pleading for SADAC's intervention to stop insurgents in that country uh, following attacks on communities in the natural gas-rich North region. The South African National Defense Forces soldiers are part of the Southern African Development Community Mission in neighboring Mozambique fighting uh, rebel groups. On Monday, a South African soldier was killed in an ambush. Corporal Deboho Radebe body uh, was returned uh, to home soil and handed over to his family by army officials. Meanwhile, Mahapa said they had made strides in combating the insurgency in northern Mozambique, uh, saying it was the interest, in the interest of SADAC nations to act against the attacks. Mahapa said while, uh, they stay, uh, while their stay had been extended to next month, they would await direction uh, from the region on how long uh, they were expected to remain on the ground. And uh, finally, uh, in regard uh, to developments uh, taking place on the continent, Archbishop Emeritus uh, Desmond Tutu has died. Uh, South Africans have been urged to honor the legacy of global peace and anti-apartheid struggle icon Archbishop Emeritus Desmond Tutu uh, and also to follow his examples. Tutu passed away at the age of 90 at his home in Cape Town earlier this morning. Described as a lifelong human rights and social justice champion, the Ark lived and preached the values of justice, forgiveness, and equality. He was also famously outspoken even after the fall of the apartheid regime. Tutu never shied away from confronting South Africa's shortcomings or injustices. Yet the ark uh, brought a unique playfulness and was always ready to dance and laugh with an infectious cackle that became his trademark. As friends, family, and supporters remember the life of the arch, many say he was left a lasting legacy that will help heal the wounds of the South African system. And with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal.
In concluding this segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then it has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in various newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. Uh, If you'd like to log on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire uh, so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, all you need to do uh, is go to our website, and uh, that is at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's the list of the today's program for the Pan-African Journal Special Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Also, to read uh, the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week. And uh, that was the Voices of the Marvelettes 
Motown Sound, Detroit's own uh, Marlettes, um, the tune entitled Somewhere, Someday. Uh, that, of course, is a uh, tribute uh, to Wanda Young, the former uh, lead singer of uh, Mar- the Marvelettes, uh, who made her transition uh, just several days ago. And, um, of course, uh, the Marvelettes uh, were alumni of Inkster High School, uh, right outside the city of Detroit. And um, two uh, major issues uh, that, uh, of course, had international coverage uh, during uh, 2021. The first we'll look at, of course, is the uh, centenary of the Tulsa Race Massacre of uh, late May and early June of 1921. Uh, The 100th anniversary was commemorated uh, just uh, six and a half months ago, and uh, we're going to bring you the proceedings of uh, two of the survivors who addressed the United States Congress uh, just uh, in May of this year. And uh, let's listen in uh, on uh, the survivors of the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921 in Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, where an estimated 300 African Americans were killed, along with uh, their homes being destroyed, their businesses uh, being burned, and many of whom uh, spent time in detention uh, for merely uh, following through on their own efforts aimed at self-determination. Let's listen in. Is the microphone on? Yes. My name is that okay, okay. My name is Viola Ford Fletcher. I'm the daughter of Lucinda Ellis and John Wesley Ford of Tulsa, Oklahoma. I'm the sister of Hughes Van Ellis, who is also here today. I'm a survivor of the Tulsa Race Massacre. Two weeks ago, I celebrated my 107th birthday. Today, I'm visiting Washington, D.C. for the first time in my life. I'm here seeking justice, and I'm asking my country to acknowledge what happened in Tulsa in 1921. On May 31st and 21, I went to bed in my family's home in Greenwood, neighbors of Tulsa, the neighborhood I felt asleep in that night, was rich, not just in terms of wealth, but in culture, community, heritage, and my family had a beautiful home. We had great neighbors, and I had friends to play with. I felt safe. I had everything a child could need. I had a bright future ahead of me. Greenwood could excuse me. Yeah. Still Greenwood should have given me the chance to make truly make it in this country. Within a few hours all of that was gone. The night of the massacre I was awakened by my family. My parents and five siblings were there. I was told we had to leave, and that was it. I will never forget the violence of the white mob when we left our home. 
I still see black men sin being shot, black bodies lying in the street. I still smell smoke and see fire. I still see black businesses being burned. I still hear airplanes flying overhead. I hear the screams. I have lived through the massacre every day. Our country may forget this history, but I cannot. I will not. And other survivors do not. And our descendants do not. When my family was forced to leave Tulsa, I lost my chance of an education. I never finished school past the fourth grade. I have never made much money in my country. State and city took a lot from me. Despite this, I spent time supporting the war effort in the shipyards of California. But most of my life, I was a domestic worker serving white families. I never made much money, but to this day, I can barely afford my everyday needs. All the while, the city of this Tulsa have unjustly used the names and stories of victims like me to enrich myself and its white allies through the 30s million, through the 30s million raised by the Tulsa Centennial Commissioner while I was continue to live in poverty. I am 107 years old and have never been seen justice. I pray that one day I will. I have been blessed with a long life and have seen the best and the worst of this country. I think about the terror, horror inflicted upon black people in this country every day. This subcontinuing nitty has the power to lead us down a better path. I'm asking that my country acknowledge what has been happened to me, the tremors and the pain, the loss, and I ask the survivors and descendants to be given a chance to speak, seek justice, open the door. All of you know how easy it is to deny that that a violent mob threatened your lives and took your property. For 70 years, the city of Tulsa and its stream of chambers told us that Damascus didn't happen, like we didn't see it with our own eyes. You have, have me here right now. You see Mother Randall. You see my brother, Hughes Van Ellis. We live this history, and we can't ignore it. It, it's our lives with us. Oh my goodness. We lost everything that day. Our homes, our churches, our newspapers, our theaters, our lives. Greenwood represented all the best of what was possible for black people in America and for all, for all the people. No one cared about us for almost a hundred years. We and our history have been forgotten, washed away. This Congress must recognize us and our history. For black America, for the white Americans, and for all Americans, with that's some justice.
Is that it? Thank you. Do you want to say anything else? Do you, do you I thought it was another page. Do you want to say anything else? Mm-hmm. Is there anything else you want to say? No, no, it's not. Thank you very much. We appreciate very much your testimony. Mother Fletcher, if we don't learn from history, we're doomed to repeat it. So thank you for putting us on the right course to learn and to understand and to do better. Thank you. Are you the older of the two siblings? The, the older. Are you older than, than, Mr., than your, your brother here? Yes. You are? Yes. So he's used to having a tough act to follow. <laughs> Our next witness is Mr. Hughes Van Ellis, yes. known as Uncle Red. Yes. He's a World War II veteran, having served in the United States Army in the China-Burma-India Theater of Operations as a member of an all-black unit. He's also a survivor of the Tulsa Race Massacre. Uncle Red, you're on. Chairman Gorman, Reagan Memo Johnson, and Memo of the Subcommittee. My name is Hughes Van Ellis. I am, I am 100 years old. And I am a survivor of the Tulsa Race Massacre. Because of the massacre, my family was driven out of our home. We were left with nothing. We were made refugees in our own country. County. My childhood was hard, and we didn't have much. We worried what little we, 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 we worried what little we had would be stolen from us, just like it was stolen in Tulsa. You may have been taught that when something is stolen from you, you can go to the courts to be made whole. You can, you can go to the courts to get justice. This wasn't the case for us. The courts in Oklahoma wouldn't hear us. The federal courts said we were too late. We were made to feel that our struggle was unworthy of justice, that we were less valued than whites, that we weren't fully Americans. We were shown that in the United States, not all men were equal under law. We were shown that when blacks voices called out for justice, no one cared. But we still had faith things would get better. We still believe in the promise of miracle and the cases of freedom. I did my duty in World War II. I served in comeback 
in the Far East with the 234 AAA gun battalion. We were all black battalion. I fought for freedom aboard, even though it was ripped away from me at home. Even after my my home and my community were destroyed. It become it was it's because I believe in it in the end. America would get its right. When I returned home from the war, I didn't find any of this freedom. I was fighting for overseas. Unlike white servicemen, I wasn't entitled to GI Bill benefits because of the color of my skin. I came home to segregation, a separate and unequal America, but still I believed in America. This is why we are still speaking up today. Even at this age of 100, the Tulsa Race Massacre is a footnote in the, in the history books for us. We live with it every day. And the thought of what Greenwood was was and what it could have been. We aren't just black and white pictures on a screen. We are flesh and blood. I was there when it happened. I'm still here. That's right. That's right. I, my sister was there with the staff keeps doing We are not asking for his hand out. All we are asking for is for a chance to be treated like a first class citizen who truly in, in, in the picture of the promise that this is a land where there is Liberty and justice for all. We are asking for justice for a lifetime of ongoing harm, harm that was caused by the massacre. We can give us the chance to be hard and give us a chance to be made whole. After all of these years, and after all our struggle, I still believe in America. I still believe in the ideas that I fought overseas to defend. And believe if given this chance, I will do the right thing and justice will be served. Please do not let me lead this earth without yeses like all the others masco survivors thank you so much thank you sir
I want to say that I appreciate being here, and I hope we all will work together. We are one. We are one. Thank you, Mr. Van Ellis, a.k.a. Uncle Red. The last witness on our panel is coming to us through Zoom, our reasonable facsimile of such, Miss Leslie Benningfield, Randall. Mother Randall was six years old when she lived through the Tulsa Race Massacre. Mother Randall will be joining us virtually. Mother Randall, you are recognized now. Good morning, Chairman Cohen. Good morning. Ranking Member Johnson and members of the subcommittee, I am blessed and honored to be to be here speaking with you today. It means a lot to me to finally be able to look at you all in the eye and ask you to do the right thing. I have waited so long for justice. <laughs> My name is Leslie Evelyn Benningfield Randall. People call me Mother Randall. Today I am like, I'm 106 years old. A hundred years ago, in 1921, I was a six-year-old child. I was blessed to live with my grandmother in a beautiful black community in Tulsa, Oklahoma, called Greenwood. I was lucky I had a home, and I had toys. I didn't have any fear. I was a young child, and I felt very safe. Oh, thank you. My, uh, my community was beautiful and was filled with happy and successful black people. Then everything changed. I would, it was like a war. White men with guns came and destroyed my community. We couldn't understand why. What did we do to them? We didn't understand. We were just living but they came and they destroyed everything. Let's see. They burned houses and businesses. They just took what they wanted and out of the building. Then they burned the building, burned them. They murdered people. We were told they just dumped the dead bodies into the river. Uh, I, I, I remember running outside of our house. I just passed dead bodies. It wasn't a pretty sight. I still see it today. 
in my mind a hundred years later. I was so scared. I didn't think we, we could we could make it out to alive. I remember people were running everywhere. <clears throat> we waited for the soldiers to come, and when they came, finally came, they took us to the background where we would be saved. It uh, felt like so long before they came. Thank you. Let's see. I survived a 1921 Tulsa race massacre, and I have survived 100 years of painful memories and losses. By the grace of God, I am still here. I have survived. I have survived to tell this story. I believe that I am still here to share it with you. Hopefully, now you, you all will listen to us while we are still here. Some more? Mm -hmm. The white people who did this to, to us were filled with so much hate. It is disgusting that that they hate us so 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 that they hate us for no reason except that we are black people. We know most of the people who who committed these these acts and died are dead now. The, the three of, the, of us here today are the only ones left that we know of. But just because these men are probably dead, the city and town of Tulsa, the state of Oklahoma, <coughs> and the Tulsa Chamber, Chambers, Chamber, are still responsible for making it, it, it right because it was it was they who, who caused the massacre, and it's it's continued. Um, the chamber helped ensure that we could not. They build after the massacre, including holding us in intimate camps. Hmm. They they owe they owe us something. They owe they owe me something. I have lived much of my life poor by opportunities. My opportunities were taken from me, uh, and my, taken from me and my community, North Tulsa, Black, Black Tulsa is still messed up today. They didn't rebuild it, they sure did. It's empty, 
it's a, it's a, it's a ghetto. They have raised more than $30 million and have replaced, refused to share any with me, with me or the other two survivors. They have used my name to further, further their fundraising goals without my permission. Now that's a crime. And misrepresenting my support of the of their, their upcoming continuum. Yes, event. Events focused on making Tulsa look good and not justice. You can help us get some justice. America is still full of examples where people in positions of power, many just like you, <clears throat> have told us to wait. Others have told us it's too late. It seems like justice in America is always so slow or not possible for black people. Uh, and we are making, and we are made to feel crazy just for asking for things to be made right. There are always so many examples, excuses, for, for why just, justice is so slow or never happened at all. I am here today, 106 years old, looking at, at, at you all in the eye We've uh, waited a hundred years. Uh, no, we have waited too long, and I am tired. We are tired. And lastly, I am asking you today to give us some peace. For some peace, please give me my family and my community. I'm Thank you. Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, the testimony of three survivors of the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. Uh, the centenary took place uh, earlier this year uh, during late May and early June of uh, 2021. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast for today, uh, which is Sunday, December 26th. Uh, 2021. We're broadcasting live 
from our studios in downtown Detroit. Uh, we'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week. Welcome back, and uh, of course, uh, Irma Thomas from uh, the city of New Orleans, the legendary Irma Thomas, uh, singing that uh, very important song, uh, Time is on My Side. And uh, another story that we covered and have been covering and continue to cover, uh, of course, is the U.S. and imperialist-backed uh, attempts to destabilize the Horn of Africa state of Ethiopia, and uh, we have been uh, presenting uh, the Ethiopian and Pan-African perspective uh, on the conflict and uh, trying to get to the root of what it is all about and uh, who are the players involved and why uh, they want to uh, destabilize and change and engage in regime change in the Horn of Africa state of Ethiopia, uh, which is the seat uh, of the African Union. 
Uh, we're going to listen uh, to a report from TRT uh, where the uh, spokesperson uh, for the Prime Minister of Ethiopia, uh, Abiy Ahmed, that is uh, Belani Seyum, uh, answers questions uh, from obviously a Western bias, uh, but uh, this, of course, is uh, what uh, we are dealing with uh, in regard to the situation in Ethiopia, the Horn of Africa, and indeed throughout the African continent and the African world. Uh, let's listen in. Welcome, everyone. I am Adeshawa Josh, and this is Africa Matters. We begin in Ethiopia, where the government says its forces have retaken a city in southern Tigray, just days after rebels announced a retreat from the Amara and Afar regions. Beleni Sayom, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed's spokesperson, joins me for an exclusive interview from the capital, Addis Ababa. And we go to Nigeria, where kidnapping for ransom is an increasingly common threat. We speak to one family about their traumatic ordeal at the hands of captors. We'll also profile South African women who are changing the landscape of entrepreneurship by building successful businesses. On Monday, the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front announced plans to withdraw from the neighboring regions of Amara and Afar, calling for a ceasefire and talks to end the 13-month civil war. Back in October, the TPLF had called for the withdrawal of federal troops from the regions as a precondition for ending hostilities and negotiating with the government. The government says the TPLF's withdrawal announcement is a cover for military setbacks. But in a letter to the UN, the TPLF leader, Deborah Singh Deborah Michael, said the decision was in response to the unanimous international call to withdraw TPLF troops from neighboring regions. He also asked the Security Council to consider imposing a no-fly zone for hostile flights over Tigray and an arms embargo on the federal government of Ethiopia and Eritrea. In December, the UN Human Rights Council agreed to launch an international investigation into rights abuses allegedly committed by both sides of the conflict. The Ethiopian government and 13 other countries on the council opposed the resolution, saying it's counterproductive and is likely to exacerbate tensions. Meanwhile, the U.S. has welcomed the TPLF's plans to retreat from Amara and Afar as a step in the right direction. Uh, so, in fact, if we do see a movement of Tigrayan forces back into Tigray, uh, that is something we would welcome. It's something we've called for, uh, and we hope it opens uh, the door uh, to, um, uh, to broader diplomacy. The Ethiopian State Minister Redwan Hussein says officials will begin an inclusive national dialogue that could lead to a referendum and a constitutional amendment. It says the TPLF, which it considers a terrorist organization, is welcome to join under certain conditions. So if TPLF um, could like um, ready to hand over like a bunch of British criminals uh, the central core, and then things might be different. <clears throat> now it's not for me to tell what might happen, but there are a number of possibilities depending on uh, what might happen in, in the coming few months and few weeks uh, uh, where our operation would keep on pushing these, these elements and how they would also embrace that they are not going to dominate, to dominate or they are not going to capture Addis. 
the UN says more than 9.4 million people are at risk of food insecurity in northern Ethiopia, and more than half of them are in Tigray. It remains to be seen if the TPLF will follow through and return its forces to Tigray. But much will also depend on how Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed chooses to respond. Let's hear more from the Prime Minister's spokesperson, Bileni Sayom. She joins me from Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Thank you so much for making our time. I can imagine how busy you, you are at this time. So my first question will be, are we likely to see peace negotiations involving the TPLF now that it has withdrawn troops from the contested regions? This is not an engagement of equals, and we've been saying that before. Um, for others, it might uh, be viewed that way, but for the Ethiopian government, for the Ethiopian people, uh, TPLF um, as a terrorist organization designated accordingly uh, by the Constitution um, is a threat to the, uh, to the integrity of uh, the nation as well. So thwarting of that threat has always been a focus, and it's not prerequisite that a designated terrorist organization will bring to the table uh, for dialogue or for a negotiations to happen, but the rule of law operations uh, that the government of Ethiopia is mandated uh, to uh, undertake needs to be seen through. So what comes as a result of this clearing process and the prerequisites and the um, you know, other uh, preconditions for any kind of um, outcome to or this uh, for lasting... So Beleni, uh, let, me just, let me just come in here. So the Ethiopian sure. government will not negotiate with the TPLF, withdrawal or not, and we don't know if this, is, this war is officially over. Um, I don't think it's uh, as simple as putting it as negotiations with a designated terrorist organization is going to bring this war over or not. Like I said, it has been important to safeguard the people of Amhara and Afar regions and the broader Ethiopian from territorial disintegrity that the TPLF have been a culprit to. So at this point in time, like I said, the focus is ensuring that they're cleared out of there. What comes as a result out of that is the onus is again on the TPLF because um, for the international community, they are saying that they want to undertake a ceasefire, that they want a peaceful resolution. But just two weeks ago or even a week ago, they were claiming that they were in the hinterlands or the inner parts of the Amhara region and that they still wanted to move forward. So this disparity in terms of their narrative is something that is not trustworthy. But as far as the Ethiopian government, which is mandated to protect the nation, is concerned, clearing them off totally out of these regions is important. There are other mechanisms that are being put in place to ensure that um, they do not continue to be a threat to the peace and uh, stability of the country. Let me come and in here, Beleni. I hear, you, I hear you loud and clear. There will be no negotiations with the TPLF. But, you know, some in the international community want accusations of rights abuses by both government and Tigray forces investigated by an independent team led by the UN. This is what Nada Al-Nashif, the UN Deputy Commission for Human Rights, uh, had to say about that resolution. Let's, let's listen. The onus is on the state to discharge its primary responsibility to deliver fair and independent proceedings that address the full range of violations identified, not only isolated individual instances, and to take into consideration applicable command responsibility. Without significant accountability efforts, an international mechanism could be an important complement. Can the Ethiopian government be trusted to conduct a free and fair investigation into the allegations and hold perpetrators to account, even if it stands accused? 
Um, just, I mean, I need to backtrack a little bit and uh, ensure that there is clarity mm -hmm. uh, because they are, um, I don't want it to be outside, uh, you know, to be construed as the Ethiopian government or the Ethiopian people not wanting a peaceful resolution to this. But there are certain preconditions that the Ethiopian government will put forward um, when it's a due time. Now, responding to your question in terms of is the Ethiopian government willing um, and committed to um, an independent investigation, this is a track record uh, that uh, the prime minister has set forth um, early in the conflict as well. Rightly, when you had also introduced earlier uh, the you know, the human rights um, entity or responsible body within the UN had initiated these independent investigations together with the Ethiopian Human Rights Commission um, sometime in March, which by um, uh, October, by November they had concluded and provided the results, which did also hold accountable, yes, a government, uh, certain elements of the government forces for having committed human rights abuses. The prime minister and the Ethiopian government accepted this with reservations um, and uh, facilitated or created a joint mechanism uh, or an interministerial task force was also launched to look into the recommendations that had been fought through this uh, recommendation. So that commitment is there. The commitment has never wavered, and the Ethiopian government has got no, nothing to hide in this regard. Right. Um, but so, but Bileni, I mean, the question is, if you stand accused, I mean, if the federal government, federal forces stand accused, as well as the TPLF, do you not think it's important to recuse yourself? and allow an independent team. Now, where they come from is up to both the government and the regional organizations and perhaps the international community, talking about the UN and your Western allies, to decide who leads these investigations. But do you think that the Ethiopian government should still lead an investigation into an allegation that touches on its, um, uh, on its uh, conduct throughout this war? The Ethiopian government has not been involved in undertaking this investigation. The Ethiopian Human Rights Commission is an independent body. Um, as part of the democratization process that Ethiopia embarked on three years ago, it was inherent to the way that the Ethiopian Human Rights Commission was restructured outside of TPLF's influence before, which was partisan to the TPLF's uh, meanderings and uh, will. But the Ethiopian Human Rights Commission is independent of the government, so we should not misconstrue it as a body that is subservient to the federal government. You agree with me this is a great time to support the people who actually haven't contributed to this war, but they are suffering the most. They have been supported, and let's not make it seem that the people of Tigray are being punished by the... Oh, I'm not referring to just the Tigrayans. I'm talking about the 9.4 million people, not just in northern Tigray, but also, as you have mentioned, in Afar and Amara. Just the people who need humanitarian aid, the people in the middle of this political uh, crisis, this, 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 this crisis. Yeah. Assistance is being delivered, and we have to take note. I mean, this is something that we've been continuously providing updates on, um, including from the UN, and they have also been providing updates in terms of um, uh, movement of trucks within the Tigray region, um, assistance for the uh, affected um, individuals and communities within the Afar and the Amhara regions as well. There is still a requirement for a lot of partners to come on board and ensure that those beneficiaries who are in dire need of humanitarian assistance all across the board um, are sufficiently provisioned uh, in this regard as well. So the government also from its covers has been allocating a lot of funds, has been buying um, a lot of assistance materials and has been at the forefront of, um, you know, providing this assistance. And not only the government, but average Ethiopians uh, within the country, Ethiopians within the diaspora as well, who have okay. been mobilized.
your assistance uh, support right. to this end. Well, thank you so much, Bileni Sayam, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed spokesperson. We have more stories coming up for you here on African Matters, including... I am Palum David. I'll take a look at Nigeria's booming kidnapping industry and ask what, if anything is being done, to put an end to it. Since Burundi gained independence in 1962, the East African nation has been plagued by ethnic violence. Long-simmering tensions between the country's two main ethnic groups, the Hutus and the Tutsis, boiled over in 1972. It's estimated that between 100,000 and 300,000 Hutu people were killed in a shocking massacre. Now, Monday, a Burundi government commission found that the massacre of Hutus by the then Tutsi-dominated government was indeed an act of genocide. Kubra Hakoch has the story. The 1972 mass killings in Burundi is described by some as the darkest chapter of history for the East African nation. And now the final findings of a Burundi government commission, which was set up in 2018 to investigate the killings, have been released. The group Considering all the data, witness testimonies and laws, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission qualifies what happened in 1972 and in 1973 as a crime of genocide committed against the Hutu people. The commission also says crimes against humanity had been committed against ethnic Tutsis during the same period. The commission's chairperson says after three years of investigation, the commission has found remains of 19,000 people in 200 mass graves. Burundi, a former German colony, was under Belgian rule until 1962 when it gained its independence. But the country has been rocked by ethnic tensions and civil war ever since. Tensions flared in 1972 when the Tutsi-dominated government and army carried out a series of mass killings against Hutus. It is believed between 100,000 and 300,000 people were massacred. Witnesses who gave evidence to the Burundi Commission say that every night in the months of May and June in 1972, Hutus who were serving time in prison were put in trucks and sent to the banks of the Ruvubu River where they were killed and dumped in pits. But the Commission's finding has sparked controversy many times before and has been accused of leaning towards one ethnic group. Some Tutsi politicians say these latest findings are one-sided and that the violence was mutual. Kubra Akoch, Tiati World. Nigeria is experiencing what some are calling a kidnapping epidemic. Most severe in the north of the country, it has now spread to other regions and the government is under increasing pressure to address the issue. It's estimated around 2,000 people have been kidnapped across the country this year. And while many have been released, some never return home. In this report, Polom David takes a look at how people in Nigeria are coping. Gunmen broke into the home of nine-year-old Divine Ubom in Nigeria's capital Abuja in November. They kidnapped the sleeping boy along with his 16-year-old sister Ayo and their mother. The kidnappers demanded a ransom of more than $700,000, but fortunately they were rescued after two days by security operatives without paying a cent. The young boy says his experience with the kidnappers was extremely traumatic. My legs were all sore. I almost became blind because all these pointy 
um, plantations have entered this eye here. So when they now entered, uh, my eye was not doing me like this. So it was now pain. So my legs became sore. So I was now walking so I was now leaving. Now I said, Muje, now pointed gun at my neck. I said, if you don't walk, I'll shoot you here. Little Divine says he now lives in constant fear. Like if bandits can come to your own house at the middle of the night, eh? Enter your own house, carry out of your own gunmen out of your own house in the middle of the night. I'm living in fear. Divine's mother, who was also abducted, says she's yet to recover from the shock. She reveals that the kidnappers also stole from them. They took money, they took phones, they took laptops, they even carried the school bag. I wish they had even left the books inside. The freedom with which kidnappers and gangs are operating within Nigeria is causing widespread anger and panic. Many are accusing President Buhari's administration of failing to address the situation. The Nigerian police force say more than 1,200 kidnapping victims have been rescued this year, but hundreds of people are still in the hands of abductors while 1,450 suspected kidnappers have been arrested this year. What is your work? You say he is a kidnapper. 27-year-old Musa Ibrahim confessed that he kidnapped six people while wearing a fake military uniform and demanded about $1,500 in ransom. Analysts believe that rising unemployment and ransom payments by families and local governments are making kidnapping a lucrative business for some. Nigerian police spokesperson Frank Umba says, aside from making these arrests, they have also intercepted thousands of weapons. Within this year, under review, we recovered a total of 1,787 assorted weapons. And I'm not just talking of locally fabricated weapons, I'm talking of AK-47, AK-49, and other weapons in the Kalashino family, including uh, general purpose. Uh, machine guns. We also recovered um, over 41,000 rounds of life ammunition. Kayo Debolaji, a security analyst, believes that the Nigerian police need to do more in stamping out these kidnapping gangs. Uh, they are deficient in several ways, lack of technology, lack of manpower, lack of adequate training uh, to be able to assess some of these um, facilities where these bad, uh, bandits and kidnappers are. Uh, so in general, we will need to look for new ways to, to tackle the issue of, uh, of banditry, kidnapping and crime generally in Nigeria. Until then, hundreds small families are at risk of forcefully being taken away from their homes to face the ordeal that nine-year-old Divine, his sister and mother did. Palum David, Africa Matters, Abuja. You're watching Africa Matters, and here's a roundup of other stories making news across the continent. A fight broke out in Ghana's parliament with several lawmakers throwing punches during the debate on a proposed electronic payment tax. The controversial bill would impose a 1.75% e-levy on mobile money transactions. The opposition has delayed passing the national budget since last month over the measure. Critics say the levy will hit lower-income people who rely heavily on mobile money transfers. In Nigeria, health authorities have destroyed more than 1 million expired COVID-19 vaccine doses. The head of the National Healthcare Development Agency has blamed vaccine nationalism in developed countries for hoarding supplies and only donating them when they are about to expire. Nigeria has seen a rise in shipments that is facing logistical challenges and vaccine hesitancy. 
and thanks to conservation efforts, mountain gorillas in Rwanda have been removed from the endangered species list. Their population at the Volcanoes National Park in Rwanda has grown into the hundreds, so much that the park is running out of space. The Rwanda government is planning to move around 4,000 farming households starting next year in order to extend the wildlife area. Despite a lack of capital, women are changing the rules of entrepreneurship in South Africa. According to the World Bank, only 3% of all early-stage investment in Africa in the last eight years went to female-led startups. And because of historic disadvantages, the numbers are lower for black women. Nsepeng Potema reports from Johannesburg. Mo Mukoni is on a routine site visit to one of her workshops. These craftsmen are completing the latest orders just in time for the holiday season. Mukoni runs a home decor company making ethical and sustainable houseware products. Some of its best sellers are laundry bins and planters made from recycled PVC water pipes, salvaged from landfills and construction sites. She started the company with her sister in 2016 using their savings and haven't received any financial backing since. We get to where we are in all the retail spaces by calling, by cold calling, by emailing, by following up every day. I mean, I have a target for myself where I send 50 emails a day. In addition to their online store, the products are now sold by some of the biggest retailers in South Africa and the United States. A few months ago, at their warehouse, the Mokoni sisters proudly packaged up a shipment for a major international client, the upscale American retail chain Crate & Barrel. But the pair says even with deals like those, the growth of their company is being held back by a lack of funding. There's so many offers that we had to decline because we were not able to meet demand in terms of capacity, in terms of uh, sustaining the production of whatever order it was. According to the World Bank, although more than half of South Africa's population is female, only 34% of small and medium-sized enterprises are owned and operated by women. Women here struggle with less access to capital and fewer assets than their male counterparts. Not owning property makes it harder for them to offer collateral for business loans. At the same time, South Africa mirrors the rest of the world when it comes to the low number of women working in the technology sector. Entrepreneur Mukuni Rambani is continuously working on ways to improve her product. She is the founder of Ambani Africa, an educational app that teaches young children in African languages. She is also one of the few black women in the educational tech sector to have received significant seed funding. The initial funding, whatever grant funding, um, whatever investment you can get is, is quite important and is really the difference between um, a, a business that, that can have longevity and a business that can make it and one that can't, particularly in this technology space where you do in fact need to be able to build certain technology um, in order to put it out there. One of Rambani's favorite things to do is to explore the app with her nephew. She launched it in January as a gaming platform promoting the use of local languages. With access to funding, it's now grown into a multifaceted teaching resource that's attracting users of all ages around the world. The 33-year-old says for women-led businesses to receive better support from investors, more of those venture capitalists 
need to be women? Not only in, in business do we need that change, but I think also in the VC space, um, the people that are selecting the, the businesses that get to be invested in, I think it's important that we also have women um, representing or representation in, in that space as well. That way, as South Africa and the African continent continue to see a boom in startups, the women who own them won't get left behind. Africa Matters, Johannesburg. This week, we go to southern Africa and explore the town of Maun, often called the tourist capital of Botswana. That's because it's a transit hub into some of the most popular safari destinations on the continent. Let's take a closer look. That's our show this week. Please share your thoughts and suggestions about the stories you've seen on this episode or ideas of stories you would like us to cover on Twitter using the hashtag Africa Matters. Feel free to reach out to me on my personal handle at Adeshawa Josh and please watch us on YouTube. We'll leave you with these images from across the continent. Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, Africa Matters discussing uh, the situation uh, in uh, Ethiopia as well as uh, Nigeria and other countries on the African continent. You're listening to uh, the Patent African Journal special worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, uh, December 26, 2021. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit like to have access to this program, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. Uh, we'll be back with more of our program for this week.
China Global Television Network. Bodies of 27 migrants wash ashore in Libya. Sudanese protesters opposed to military rule call for free elections. And South Africans and world figures mourn the loss of a Desmond Tutu. Welcome to Africa Live on CGTN with me, Beatrice Marshall in Nairobi. Also coming up on the program, China's Shenzhou 13 astronauts conduct a second extravehicular activity. And demand in Nigeria is rising for woven cane baskets amid holiday season. 
Humanitarian agencies in Libya are reporting the discovery of 27 bodies of Europe-bound migrants that have washed ashore in western Libya. The bodies were found in the coastal town of Koms in two separate locations. Three other migrants have been rescued as search efforts continue. The International Organization for Migration says it has recorded over 160 deaths this month after migrants drowned in two separate incidents off the coast of Libya. According to the United Nations Migration Agency, about 1,500 migrants have perished in shipwrecks in the central Mediterranean route this year. Well, let's cross over to CGTN's Adel Mahrui. He's in Cairo for us. Adel, what more can you tell us about the bodies of the 27 migrants washing ashore in Libya? Well, so far it has risen up to 28 bodies um, found um, at, across shore of Libya. That's about in a place called uh, Al Alts, which is, which is about 90 kilometers east uh, of Tripoli in the northern part of Libya in the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, and the res re search and rescue mission is still ongoing. However, it is believed that um, the bodies of these people may be attributed to an earlier incident about three or four days ago uh, when the IAM confirmed the death of about 160 uh, migrants who crossed their boats capsized and they were not found. According um, to the initial visual inspections of the bodies found, um, the, report, the initial report says that they, they most probably have been in the sea for some time as some signs of um, impact and decay have been quite evident, which makes it most probably um, related to um, the earlier incident about the 160 migrants. However, further investigations are still on way. Adel, could you tell us more about the search and rescue efforts that you've mentioned? Well, the search and rescue effort is quite challenging at this time of the year in the northern um, hemisphere of the Earth, where in the Mediterranean Sea, the, this is um, a fall season moving into um, the winter season. So it is quite turbulent um, in the Mediterranean Sea, and this is usually the most deadly period uh, that we've seen throughout um, the old year activity of um, illegal migration and the attempts to cross the Mediterranean from Libya and Tunisia into um, Europe, into southern Europe. Um, and therefore the rescue mission is quite challenging. At night it becomes almost impossible for them to conduct any operation and therefore it pauses and moves on. But um, the um, rescuers believe that in the coming days as uh, the, the tides of the Mediterranean have um, thrown away some of the bodies toward that area of Libya that they expect to find more um, in the next day. Now this is not just um, a first of its kind instant. Uh, we know that um, illegal migration in general has been quite a challenge specifically uh, from Libya into Europe. Just in the, the week from um, the, the 12th to 16th uh, to 18th of December, IOM says they have intercepted and rescued about 466 uh, migrants. Now, these were the lucky ones. Overall, about 30,000 attempts have been registered uh, by the IOM where they have intercepted and managed to push migrants back where they find themselves detained in Libya and live under, under dire situations. Adel Mahoui joining us there from Cairo. Oh, thank you. The crew of the Shenzhou 13 have finished conducting their second spacewalk on the China space station. Senior Colonel Yo Guangfu left the COME module first. Mission Commander Zai Shihang uh, followed around an hour later. And this time Wang Yangping was supporting them from inside the station. So far the main task of the extravehicular activities has been completed. The three crew members have been in orbit since October the 16th and will stay in space for a total of six months.
It's their last big assignment this year for the Shenzhou 13 crew, and it's also their second EVA activity. And this time, Taekwondo's Ye Guangfu and Zhai Zhigang were out, while Wang Yaping stayed in. And for the pair out of the core module, their assignment included some heavy lifting, including putting up and installing a panoramic camera and installing a key component for the mighty robotic arm and testing out a synchronized collaborative lifting with precision unprecedented. Now, the space engineers here at the Beijing Control Center tell us they were able to ace all of those movements because a lot of times for the key movements, they've practiced at least a dozen times uh, down on the ground. And also another thing we've noticed here uh, at the ground control center, the longer the crew stayed up there in space, the more relaxed and kind of like chilled they are. Today and this time around, we heard the Taikonauts joked around uh, with um, people here at the ground control center. And of course, we heard that famous mantra, I am out and I'm feeling just fine. And we certainly hope and we're expecting that they will be feeling fine the rest of the year in, in 2022. Sun Ye, CGTN at the Beijing Control Center. The International Space Station is expected to retire by 2024, so the CSS could soon be the only one in orbit. But China has promised to share its station with the rest of the world, especially developing countries. CGTN's Xiang Yibing looks at what the future has in store. One question to ask is, will we replace the existing International Space Station known as the ISS? Well, the latter has been in orbit for over 20 years it's a multinational project that has contributed greatly to our scientific understanding of space. But it may have to retire after 2024. If true, China's space station could be the only one in orbit for the sustained period of time. So it's very likely to play an increasing central role in future science-related research. Another question is, would it be like the ISS and receive international astronauts? Well, back in May 2018, China, together with the United Nations Agency for Outer Space Affairs, invited all UN members to conduct scientific experiments on the new space station, especially developing countries. So, in this sense, the new space station will be shared by many more countries acting as an outpost. Some say this is because China was once excluded from the ISS, so it fully understands the needs and desires of other countries. So within the year, 42 proposals were put forward by 27 countries for the first group of tests. Nine were chosen and they are being prepared once the station is put into use around 2022. Training exchanges between astronauts from the European Space Agency and China National Space Administration have already begun. Russia plans to cooperate with China in this field and on lunar basis as well. When faced with the vast and mysterious universe and huge expenses and risks that come with exploring space, no one can work alone. Coming next, two of the remaining eight assembly missions for China's space station will carry the lab modules through the space station. And there will also be three more robotic resupply flights, not to mention three more crewed missions during the outpost phase of construction. So there's a lot to look forward to in terms of performance and other contributions to the joint exploration of space by all human beings. So you think?
Sudan. Beijing. Tens of thousands of Sudanese protesters rallied near the presidential palace in the capital Khartoum on Saturday, demanding soldiers go back to the barracks. It was the tenth major demonstration since the military took power in October. Protesters say they won the military out of the government during a transition to free elections. Soldiers fired tear gas to disperse the demonstrators. Communications were cut off and major roads and bridges were blocked. Officials say 58 police personnel were injured in the protest and more than 100 people were arrested. So far, at least 48 people have died in crackdowns on the demonstrators. We will not go out in favor of a party or in favor of freedom and change. We will remain in the street unless our demands are fulfilled. And our demands are that the Burham leave and the rapid support militias be dissolved and return to the barracks and the army becomes a national army. Rejecting murder, oppression and violence, we went out today and we will go tomorrow demanding a civil and democratic state in which we will be free and live in dignity. The weapon of rape shames the rapist. It does not defeat us, does not break us, and we will not retreat. Meanwhile, a strategic expert and a political analyst in Sudan say that imposing security measures will calm things down by reducing the friction from direct confrontation. And protesters in Khartoum and other cities need leaders to help them reach their goals. I think that the security measures taken by the security services are aimed at preventing a recurrence of what happened on the 19th of December so that there will be no costing lives for the young people, for the procedures, for the disposal from the front of the Republican palace. Therefore, I think that it will be useful in preventing injuries and reducing friction between the security services and the demonstrators. These demonstrations need leadership in order to reach their goals. In their current way, they cannot achieve the desired goals, because the demonstration in the end must have leadership and a roadmap to achieve the goals, which is the full restoration of civil authority, and it is expected that these demonstrations will continue until decisions are reached or political settlements. The demonstrations industries cannot reach the goal unless there is a political force that crystallizes these demonstrations in a clear roadmap and arrives at inevitable results. South Africans are mourning the death of Christian clergyman and Archbishop Desmond Tutu. He died at the age of 90 on Sunday in Cape Town after battling with cancer. CGTN's Ashtatal brings us the story. A unifying symbol for all African freedom fighters. This is a description of Desmond Tutu from the Norwegian Nobel Institute, a statement that South Africans agree with. Thank you for being with us. It's actually very sad, and um, I don't think not only for South Africa, but for Africa as a continent. We have lost a great icon, uh, a father, uh, a human who was there not just for the, the, African the South African people, but for Africa as, 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 a, as a nation, Africa as a unit, Africa as one. Any death is a sad death, actually. I mean, like, if we're losing our leaders like this, our elders, it's always sad. It's never easy. So I'm very saddened about his death. Stephen Gish, the author of a biography on Tutu, regards him as South Africa's Martin Luther King. 
Tutu also maintain a presence in the international community, taking part in mediation efforts from Kenya to as far as the island of Cyprus. His memory as a brave and authoritative leader will forever be ingrained in those who knew him. I feel very, very, very down emotionally right now because he was um, somebody that almost everybody liked, especially the kids. They love him. We're very sad. Very sad. It was a real shock to us. He's been he a, was a great man. Yes, somebody to look up to. And we're really going to miss him. In recent years, Tutu was hospitalized several times due to infections associated with cancer treatment. President Cyril Ramaphosa says his demise marks another chapter in bidding farewell to those who have handed down to the nation a liberated South Africa. Asatal, CGTN. You're watching Africa Live, still ahead on the program. Demand in Nigeria is rising for woven cane baskets amid holiday season. And China marks 40-day countdown to Beijing 2022 Winter Olympics. So this is it. I'm just about to be shot. Right here, bottles are being thrown as they do so. Uh, we there are about three critical <laughs> bridges here in Malawi. That's one of them. We're going to cross that bridge. As you can see behind me, police forces who are replying with gas. Yeah, gas just came in. Gas. So it's all begun now. Divisions leading the charge into West Mosul have brought us here. Just got to be careful here with some gunshots. This is where most of the fighting has been concentrated. It's the front line now after nine days of fighting. We're about two to three kilometers from the front clear line. view of this front line position. In Nigeria, cane craft artists and entrepreneurs are cashing on the Yuletide rush. The high demand for woven cane baskets comes with the season's gift-giving traditions. The once-dying craft has now come alive as artists express creativity with the cane baskets in varying shapes and sizes. CGTN's Kletchi Emekalam reports. 40-year-old Peter Robinson is popularly known as the king of cane for his artistic dexterity in the craft. Weaving with gusto, he's doubling his efforts to finish clients' orders for these bespoke cane baskets. Robinson started Cane Craft over three decades ago. He was barely seven years old. Now it's peak period this Yuletide and his craft is finally paying off. He rakes in nearly 20% in profits. He credits it to his artistic prowess. When you do a good job, the job sells itself. There is good profit in this job, especially if your work is good and people in Abuja like and will patronage a neat job anytime. Robinson has a growing customer base. Adiolanganche is one of those who patronize him. She runs Happy Hampers, a gift packaging business that's bolstering this Yuletide. Depending on the size and items, a hamper could cost between $45 and $250, and for exotic gifts, it costs even more. The cane um, baskets are more durable, they are flexible, you know, they are resistant to the weather, whether rain or heat. And, you know, you can use them even after 
given the gift, even after having the gift, it can still be used for household um, use to store things. If you are doing like 15 to 20 hampers, on an average, you can make like 15% profit on each basket. So it's a, it's a very good business. Since the beginning of the holiday season, that's since the beginning of December, I've made like 10 to 15 per week. Cane craft is a major expression of artistry in Nigeria passed down from generations. Chairs, tables, stools and other attractive home furniture items are created from cane. Cane artists like Peter Robinson believe that with government support, Nigeria can make revenue from exports. I'm hoping that we can start exporting this cane craft because the Western world needs cane. If the government supports us, there is a huge opportunity to do better on this craft. can do more than better than this for this our work. All materials from cane crafts are sourced locally and it's helping many like Peter Robinson and Adiola Nganje not only earn a living but create job opportunities for others. Kilichi and Mekalam, CGTN Abuja, Nigeria. There are 40 days left until the Beijing Winter Olympics. And Beijing has held an event attended by famous Chinese athletes to promote winter sports. The country's athletes have been getting ready for the Games for months now. The national ice hockey team, for example, has just finished training in Russia. Leaders of different countries are expected to attend the opening ceremony. Russian President Vladimir Putin will be there in person. The president of the International Olympic Committee, Thomas Bach, says the Games will bring the world together in the spirit of peace, friendship and solidarity. Olympic officials and athletes from other countries say they look forward to Beijing 2022. We, through Olympics, through the, the Olympic ideals, we bring everyone together. And I think in this time, in COVID time, it's, it's really, really important to, to have Olympic Games. I just returned from the World Cup. I will check out others' performances and flaws through the videos, and also mine. I've trained day and night. We still have 40 days left. I feel good. I'm eager to see it live with my own eyes and take some pictures and present it to the whole world what, uh, how nice venues you have made. Well, final preparations and testing continue at all the venues for the Beijing Winter Olympics. Feng Yilei has this report from Shang Jiakou, Hebei province, which will host the snow event. With Beijing Winter Olympic Games around the corner, the co-host city of Zhang Jiakou is set to hold its final week of training and stress tests. It will mark the completion of pre-game testing for all venues at Zhang Jiakou School Yangshu Cluster, the National Ski Jumping Center, the National Cross-Country Skiing Center, and the National Biathlon Center. In the final month or so, we will strive to improve the temporary facilities of the venues. For example, we have finished the snowmaking on trails and are now making snow to create a beautiful environment of ice and snow. And there's still work to be done on the Olympic broadcasting services. The newly built National Ski Jumping Center is now a landmark it is China's first ski jumping site that meets international standards. Officials say they have done everything they can to ensure the safety of athletes while protecting thousands of trees on the mountains. The construction of the National Ski Jumping Center requires most work of all venues, 
Designers and workers have overcome high technical difficulties, and the facilities are undergoing final adjustments for the Winter Olympic Games. During the test events, we noticed some problems with, for example, doorknobs and heating. These are all minor problems. Our operation team has been communicating with the International Snow Federation and other international organizations. The feedback we've got suggests they're very happy with the whole venue. The newly built National Cross Country Skiing Center in Zhangjiakou will host the Cross Country Skiing and Nordic Combined Event. Its facility manager says more than 90% of the work here is done, and they've taken action to deal with risks brought by the pandemic. Our work is centered around the athletes. All relevant staff need to be two meters from the athletes, and we have set up preventive fences. In order to protect the safety of the spectators, we have canceled some standing room in the auditorium. The Genting Snow Park is the only venue that's been adapted from an existing ski resort. It will host some 20 skiing and snowboarding events. The trails that have been reshaped for different events can be repurposed. The site will continue to function as a public ski resort after that. We can reduce the difficulty of the trails through reshaping, so that people can also use the Olympic trails. Likewise, we can also add difficulties through reshaping to hold other international competitions. Other non-competition facilities that are getting ready include the Winter Olympic Village, the Mountain Press Center, and high-speed transport links from Beijing to Zhangjiakou. These will also be used for other events when the Olympics are over. From Yilisijitian, Zhangjiakou. Continue with Winter Olympics news. China's foreign ministry has urged Japan not to politicize sports in response to Tokyo's announcement that it will refrain from sending a government delegation to the 2022 Winter Olympics in Beijing in February. Tokyo has instead opted to send some officials with direct ties to the Olympics. Tokyo's decision follows a U.S.-led diplomatic boycott of the Games. China did not send a government delegation to the Tokyo Summer Olympics this year, but only a sports delegation led by the sports bureau chief. China welcomes the Japanese Olympic Committee, other relevant persons, and Japanese athletes to participate in the Beijing Winter Olympics and Paralympics. We have noted the relevant remarks from the Japanese government. We hope and urge the Japanese side to implement China and Japan's commitments. To support each other's Olympic Games and not to politicize sports, China is confident that it can work with all parties to realize a more united Olympic spirit and present a simple, safe, and exciting Olympic Games to the world. Well, African basketball had a milestone in 2021 as the continent continued to recover from the global pandemic. Three major competitions were held as several youth basketball programs. Tipped off around Africa this year, CGTN's Mohamed Abubakar looks back at a renaissance year in the sport. Basketball bounced back with force across Africa in 2021. The epicenter of the action was at the majestic Kigali Arena in Rwanda, that hosted the inaugural Basketball Africa League in May. This is the flagship club basketball competition that involves zonal champions across the continent. Powered by the revered American NBA and world governing body FIBA, 
the BAL showcased the depth of local talent the sport has in Africa. Basketball in general in Africa uh, is on the way up and I think uh, we got to be excited for it and I think our players have done their best to get better. I think now the pressure is on us um, and the rest of the leaders uh, to really step up and not let our players down. We've shown that the talent is there, you know, and now when you go across Africa and the game is growing, now we've got to grow everything else. We've got to grow the facilities. We've got to, you know, focus on how do we make the game better. Rwanda's capital was yet again home to the 30th edition of the FIBA Men's AfroBasket in August. The competition, which was celebrating its 60th anniversary, was an unforgettable tournament. Despite Tunisia defending their title, it was the East African teams that won everyone's hearts. Debutants South Sudan reached the quarterfinals, Kenya and Uganda made the pre-quarters, while the host nation left a lasting impression. And Rwanda has been so stable, not only having a good team, but basically carrying the torture and, and the flag for Africa right now. And to be a part of that in East Africa uh, has been amazing. And I think there's other countries uh, that I really believe have the talent, you know, Burundi, Somalia. I really believe that the talent is there. It's just about getting it together and organizing. There's a lot of players that I know from those countries that can play basketball. The FIBA women's Afrobasket in Yaoundé, Cameroon, capped off a busy year for the sport. Nigeria beat Mali in the final to win their third successive title. We need to still promoting the women in, in, in basketball. The women are very important in our society, uh, specifically in Africa. You know the cultural problems that we have, so this is our main objective is to look for the woman. FIBA Africa also tipped off an elite youth camp program led by NBA and FIBA experts to further develop young players in Kenya, Senegal and Cote d'Ivoire. The program will continue across other countries in Africa in 2022. Mohamed Abubakar, CGTN. In African football news, Barcelona's team sensation Abdel Samad. Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, Africa Live uh, from CGTN. And uh, our concluding uh, segment uh, will be also from CGTN, Africa Talk, the panel uh, discussing some of the important issues taking place on the African continent during 2021. Let's listen in. China Global Television Network. Despite some signs of hope, the world still remains in the grips of the COVID-19 pandemic. The world is also dealing with the seemingly accelerating pace of climate change. From vaccine nationalism to environmental impact, Africa has borne the brunt of this crisis. Organizations such as the UN and the World Health Organization have joined South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa in pushing for a lifting of COVID-19 vaccine IP rights. Yet, as we head into year three of this pandemic and the world is in the grips of another variant, there seems to be little movement on this front. The Climate Summit in Glasgow brought little back in the form of climate finance, which is key for developing countries looking to turn green. Africa has been hard hit by the climate change crisis. 
Extreme weather events such as floods and droughts have battered the continent. In matters of security and politics, 2021 was a roller coaster year for the African continent. From coups across West Africa to conflicts breaking out in the Horn of Africa, it was a year of major shifts. Yet, a new leader in America and a UN General Assembly meeting that marked the return of a multilateral system battered by several years of European nationalism. A reassuring partnership with China in the fight against the pandemic as the CPC celebrates its centenary and the year end to the Focus Summit in Dakar, Senegal. On this week's episode of the program, we look into existing challenges caused by the pandemic. We take a look at the economic and security situation on the continent as well as the impact of climate change. So what lessons will Africa take from 2021 as it embraces yet another new year? And what can the continent expect in 2022? I'm Beatrice Marshall. Welcome to Talk Africa. Let's now bring in our panel of experts all joining via Zoom from Johannesburg, Dr. David Monyae, an international relations and foreign policy expert. In Beijing, Professor Xia Lu, Associate Professor of School of Marxism Studies, Renmin University of China. In Bangui, Dr. Ngoi Nsenga, COVID-19 Incident Manager for the World Health Organization's Regional Office for Africa. And in Mombasa, Kenya, Mustafa Ali, co-founder and chairman of the Horn International Institute for Strategic Studies. Gentlemen, a warm welcome and thank you very much for joining in on Talk Africa today. Uh, Dr. Nsenga, if I may start off with you, it has been quite an eventful year. Many still unexpected uh, things have happened. What's your take on uh, the key moments that stood out for you in 2021? Of course, the, the key event, the public health-wise, is uh, the COVID-19, which we're still battling and which will, I, I believe will continue uh, even beyond 2021 and maybe even beyond 2022. Uh, that said now uh, that we have tools, at least we have tools, and by tool I mean especially the vaccine, even though the distribution of the vaccine globally uh, is not what they expect, but I think in Africa we are also... Uh, making progress, even though the progress are still very, very uh, slow and the progress is still very low in terms of vaccination and reaching all the people. But I believe we are getting there and I also believe that if there is nothing else which compromises the vaccination, uh, which I'm thinking here about new variant, right. I think we'll also uh, in Africa get rid of, of uh, COVID uh, when it comes time. Dr. Dr. Monyai, the key moments that stood out for you? There are quite a lot of um, moments. Uh, as my colleague has mentioned, the COVID, which is a negative, uh, played a, a negative part in Africa's development. But there was also a positive element of the very same COVID-19. Uh, for the very first time, we saw uh, Africans really working extremely hard, united, uh, presenting a um, a regional front in terms of buying of vaccines, um, speaking with one voice. I think there hasn't been any year that Africans spoke loudly uh, in terms of demanding fairness at a global level and exposing the unfairness in which the continent is uh, treated. 
Um, we have also have had a number of coups on the African continent uh, this year, more than any other year uh, in the recent past. Um, and this was also followed uh, by um, change of government, uh, particularly in Zambia. We saw the coming of a new uh, opposition leader uh, taking uh, power. Uh, and we also have had um, a continent that uh, is moving uh, forward on its infrastructure development right. uh, and more so in partnership with strategic partners. And of all partners, I think China has uh, come out as the most important uh, in terms of figure, uh, the number of investments, um, the assistance and the donations, including uh, the recent announced um, 1 billion uh, vaccines, 600 uh, million donations, and 400 jointly um, uh, production with Africans. So right. these are some of the most important events uh, in my view. Uh, Professor Xialu, your thoughts? Actually, when we look back uh, 50 years ago in 1971, actually it was, uh, or it were the African countries, the friendly countries that, uh, you know, introduced the kind of resolution into the United Nations that restored the legal seat of the People's Republic of China ever since 1940s, the UN was established. So I would like to say that in the year 2021, this event marks the milestone between the relation between, uh, I mean, uh, between the relation, uh, in, in the relation between China and the African continent. And the second, uh, we also know that uh, uh, in, in, last, uh, in early, early this month, uh, there was a kind of a, a ministerial uh, meeting uh, between the African countries and China. That was uh, a forum on the China-African cooperation. And this year's kind of the meeting focused on the uh, uh, strengthening or the improvement of a rural area and also the poverty alleviation. So uh, I would like to argue that the poverty alleviation would be the focus of the, uh, the, ne the next couple of years between uh, China and Africa. Dr. Must Mr. Mustafa, your thoughts? Thank you, Beatrice. Uh, this year, 2021, really was a mixed bag uh, here in Africa. And uh, uh, some of the highlights, good points, is the in some areas there were, you know, increasing democratization processes in southern Africa. Uh, uh, you know, people electing their government. We saw an opposition uh, party and uh, a leader coming up to take to win the presidency in Zambia. Um, so generally, more legitimacy in 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 in, uh, in the democratic uh, processes here. Multilaterally, uh, we saw um, more multilateralism. China. Uh, uh, Africa relations strengthening and focusing on what really matters in terms of uh, building infrastructure and connecting the African continent so that there is increased trading between countries uh, um, of Africa. Th these are some of the highlights. Uh, of course, not forgetting that there was a robust uh, uh, engagement, uh, mobilization to address COVID, which on the whole, um, has not affected the African continent as much as it has affected Europe, for example, Latin America, uh, 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 in, 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 in terms of um, uh, health. Um, however, the economy of African continent, uh, uh, even though there were these developments, positive right. developments, it was hard hit by COVID-19. 
Dr. Nsenga, so let's look at this event that uh, many have talked about that defined most of 2021, the COVID-19 pandemic and the vaccines. Now, according to the World Health Organization, Africa has fully vaccinated about 77 million people, just about 6% of its population. In comparison, over 70% of the high-income countries you know, have been vaccinated. Why is the uptake in Africa so low? Uh, in Africa, as of today, we have now vaccinated, when I mean vaccinated, fully vaccinated, which means uh, for two doses, for those vaccines that need two doses, or for one dose, for the vaccine that need only one dose, like Johnson & Johnson. So as of today, we have vaccinated 115 million uh, people, fully vaccinated, uh, which represents about 8.4% of the population, the total of, uh, African population. Now, that's one. The second one is... Uh, let us also uh, not paint Africa in the whole one color as, as usual. Uh, Africa actually is many countries and they are different and they are at different level, even including in, in terms of vaccination. As we speak in Africa today, at least 26 countries, they've consumed uh, more than 50% of the vaccine that they have and that uh, at least... Uh, seven countries have completed more than 40% uh, of fully vaccinated people, including uh, some of the countries at more even about 79% of fully vaccinated people. Now, that said, that said, you're absolutely right. When we compare Africa as a whole and other regions, yes, Africa has vaccinated less than other regions. And there's a very clear reason about that. Right. The reasons, some of the reasons are the, the, the following. One, you might remember, Beatrice, that Africa, we started the latest. I mean, long later than other countries and other regions. That's one. Second, of course, is availability of vaccine. I started here by giving the number of vaccines that right. some of the countries or African countries have used. That said, is still true that African countries have not received the amount of the vaccine that is requested. And let us also be clear that we are still having, in some of our African countries, we are still struggling with operations or challenges. Right. That's also true. And of course, like in any, in any other country, in any other region, we are all... Welcome back. And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, special uh, worldwide uh, radio broadcast. And that will conclude our program uh, for today. Sunday, December 26, uh, 2021. We've been broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. If you'd like to uh, have access to today's program, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We're going to close out uh, with a live concert from 1954 featuring uh, jazz trumpeter Clifford Brown and jazz drummer uh, Max Roach. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week. Presenting the outstanding exponents of the new jazz, led by Max Roach at the drums. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen.
my pleasure to introduce you to you at this time, George Bledsoe, our bass violinist. Our pianist, Carl Perkins. Teddy Edwards, our tennis saxophonist. And the great Clifford Brown on trumpet. First, all God's children got risen.
Thank you. Now it's our pleasure to present Clifford Brown playing for you tenderly.
a Teddy Edwards original, Sunset Eyes. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.